Well, let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. It is exciting to be able to be before you again this morning to preach God's Word. What a privilege. My name is Corey Smidgen. I'm the pastor here at Palm Vista. And we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. And today's message is entitled, Confession and Denial. From Mark chapter 14, we're going to read verses 53, 53 through 72 of Mark 14. And this morning, we're really going to start off, or start up where we left off last Sunday in the Gospel of Mark. The action has slowed down considerably in Mark's narrative. We're now in the last 24 hours of Christ's life. Christ has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now we come to verses 53 to 72. I will read them now for us, the word of God. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. 
Well, dear Lord, I know for a number of us it has been a heavy and long week. Saying goodbye to two saints here at Palm Vista, two funerals. Frailty, death. Know for others here, Lord, we've experienced our own frailty, maybe not physically. But Lord, it's all around us. We see the sin in our own hearts. We see best intentions gone awry. We see a gap between what we want to do and what we do, what we profess to believe and how we actually live. Oh Lord, in our weakness, even perhaps for some in our despairing, would you encourage us this morning through your word? Oh Lord, we want it. We need it. Holy Spirit, would you minister to us? Would you open blind eyes? Would you unstop deaf ears? Would you do the ministry that you do, O Holy Spirit? Use your word. Illuminate Christ to us this morning in this text, in this passage, that we may take hope, that we may take courage this morning as we come before you in your word. O Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's put it bluntly. We just read the text, and in an instant it appears that all that Jesus has built is, well, unraveling, seemingly going up in smoke. Christ's own disciples are fleeing from him. They are betraying him and now denying him. Jesus' own people are jumping ship. Why? Because by all appearances, let alone prophecies, Christ is going down like the Titanic. His ministry has run aground on an earthly or deathly iceberg. He is finally being taken down by the authorities. And this scene and what follows are really chilling scenes. They are, in many ways, and for the disciples, confusing scenes. Chaotic. But notice that one person hasn't completely fled the scene. And it's Peter. The one by name, and by the designation of Christ, is called the rock. But take a look now at verse 54. We read these words. Peter had followed him at a distance. Or in some interpretations there, Peter followed him at a distance. We could paraphrase that by saying, Peter followed him at a safe distance. And I want to preface this message, this Narrative with that thought this morning. You see, to his credit, Peter was hanging around, wasn't he? But neither was he racing to the makeshift courthouse, the high priest's residence, to give testimony. No, it seems clear from the wording of our text that Peter wanted to observe Christ, but he didn't want to be identified with him. In other words, Peter wanted to be in the gallery observing but he did not want to be on the witness stand. If that's not clear, it becomes clear, does it not? In a few verses, when Peter denies Christ. See, what we see in verse 54 is this. Peter's very distance from Christ is a precursor 
to him denying Christ. His distance from Christ is a precursor for him denying Christ. See, just a few hours earlier, Peter had confidently told Jesus back in verse 29, even though they all, Lord, even though all the disciples, all your followers will fall away, I will not. In other words, Peter wanted Jesus to know, Jesus, I'm your right-hand man. Christ, I got your back. But Jesus said in verse 30, oh, Peter, quote, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me, not once, not twice. It says in the text, three times. And listen to how Peter responded. God bless Peter, huh? Verse 31. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. It's a church. What happened to Peter? What happened to the rock? What happened to Jesus' right-hand man? Perhaps it was indignation. Maybe it was anger. Perhaps it was bitterness. Hurt. After all, perhaps Peter was thinking, how could Jesus say that? How can this be? Was it an I who rightly confessed to Christ, to Jesus? You are the Christ. You see, I think something else was happening to Peter at that moment. No doubt there was fear. But I don't think that explains it all when it comes to Peter. Many of you know. This was bold Peter. It was Peter who had just drawn the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane when a band of Roman soldiers, perhaps over a hundred, came to arrest Jesus. It was Peter who drew the sword to cut off a servant's ear. I don't think fear can explain it alone, what was happening in Peter's heart at this moment after Christ's arrest and his trial. You see, Peter had shown loyalty, hadn't he? He had shown an allegiance to Christ. But he had also shown his ignorance. It was Jesus who said to Peter in John chapter 18, verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? That cup was God the Father's wrath poured out on Christ at the cross. Peter should have known better. With Christ's arrest, all that Peter and the disciples had worked for and hoped for seemed to be slipping from his grasp. The grand visions of glory with Christ had now become, almost in an instant, a nightmare. Peter's world had been turned upside down. He was confused. He was discombobulated. He didn't know how to interpret the events that were unfolding right before him. And he was at a loss. As a result, he was fearful. And he was at a distance. In a stunningly short amount of time, Peter had forsaken the cost of discipleship for that of safe observation. He had forsaken the cost of discipleship for safe observation. See, I think the same thing can happen to us, can it not, church? It can happen to us as disciples. And here's the first point of application I want to tease out. When things don't go as planned, 
when you feel like you have been faithful to Christ, and yet all you've done and hoped for seems to be dissipating before your very own eyes. Dreams have been dashed. People are fleeing. What do you do? Do you press into Christ? Do you draw near? Or do you attempt to distance yourself from Christ and his followers, the church? You see, Peter chose the latter. Let's admit it. Sometimes it just doesn't feel like the gospel's winning, does it? At least from your vantage point, from my vantage point, it seems like the gates of hell are prevailing. That the gates of hell are actually on the offensive and you're playing defense all alone. It's like basketball, five on one break. And you're guarding, okay, the hoop all alone on defense. Perhaps it's in the news. It's the media reports that you hear that tempt you to despair. Same-sex marriage, ISIS, presidential politics and posturing, Planned Parenthood, injustice, brutality. And you ask, where's this all leading? You feel discouraged when you think about the church. Maybe it's this church. Maybe it's another church from which you've come, a local church. And you say, you know what? I look around and this isn't what I joined up for. You know, the church and its mission that we prayed about this morning, thank you, Mickey and Dina, we prayed for? Well, you know what? Frankly, it seems a little tenuous right now. The nations coming to Christ, really? The church victorious, when you're honest, looks a little vulnerable right now and weak to you at the moment. Aren't we supposed to be a light on a hill? And then getting a little closer to home. You think about your family. Well, your family, your physical family. You're not united. You're scattered. You're divided. The gospel has not brought you together, but divided you from your unbelieving family members or those who would believe very differently than you. And it's painful. And you are confused disillusioned, maybe even burnt out. At times like this, our tendency can be to distance ourselves from our very Savior and our very hope. It's all too easy, isn't it? To be distant, to be passive, and to just observe. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to see how things pan out. You know, things turn a corner, look a little better before I stick my, stick my neck out for Christ and really join in building again with this church. See, before we diss Peter in the narrative, I just want to say this. Peter got it right in this regard. When he confessed before Jesus and said, you are the Christ, the Messiah. But Peter didn't get this right. And here's the payload for the entire sermon. We're going to put it up here on the screen. And it's this. Christ, identity, and power is revealed in suffering and weakness. Let me say it again. Christ's identity and power is revealed in suffering and weakness. And that's what we see in Mark 14 this morning. Oh, Peter got the first part right. He got the Messiah part right. But he didn't get the second part right. The part about weakness and suffering. Church, may we understand both 
go hand in hand. If we're to rightly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must understand and we must embrace the reality of suffering and weakness. It was a necessary part of our salvation. That which is being played out in the very pages of scripture, Mark 14, as Christ is about to be marched to the cross. And suffering and weakness, you know what else? Is a necessary part of our discipleship, of what it means to follow Christ. It's the cost and it's the joy of following and identifying with Christ, our Savior. But if we only choose to follow Christ from a distance, we may end up even denying him altogether, like Peter. That's why we desperately need to hear Christ's calm confession in verses 55 through 65. In the den of iniquity and darkness, gross injustice and in suffering, at that moment, Christ proclaims to his enemies and he reassures his followers of his true identity. And that leads to point one, Christ's confession. Verse 55, we read these words. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus. Why? To put him to death. But they found none. I think you know what's going on here, don't you? In the eyes of the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, the council, Jesus was guilty until proven innocent. And with the verdict already determined, they sought to find witnesses, albeit false witnesses. But as we learn in verses 56 through 59, the witnesses couldn't even agree on the charges made against Christ. But the truth, it wasn't going to stop them, was it? No. By multiple accounts, this was an unjust and illegal trial. For example, according to Jewish law, a trial at night was forbidden. A trial could not convene on the eve of the Sabbath. A trial was to take place in a very particular part of the temple. This was taking place in the upper room of the chief priest's residence. This is personal, by the way. Oh, it was personal. But even if all these violations, and there are more, took place and a guilty verdict was rendered against Jesus, a second day was required. But there was no second day, was there? What was the reason for the haste? It was presumably Thursday night and the Sabbath started the next evening, dusk of Friday, when no work could be done. So what we have here is we call a kangaroo court, a mock court, in which the laws of justice were disregarded. Why? To ensure the desired outcome in the cloak and secrecy of night. And what was that desired outcome? Oh, we already read it, verse 55. It was none other than the death of Jesus. But Jesus, he wouldn't give an answer. Not to the confused testimony. He would not answer a fool according to his folly. No, he was silent. He was the suffering servant, as prophesied in Isaiah 53, 7 on the screen. We read these words from Isaiah, speaking, foretelling of Christ. He was oppressed 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That was Christ for the chief priests, this mock trial. And he was to be spit upon and stricken as well as prophesied back in Isaiah 50, verse 6, also up on your screen. We read these words from Isaiah, speaking of Jesus in this scene in Mark 14. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He suffered in silence and weakness. But Jesus could not remain silent any longer when he's asked his true identity by the chief priest. It was time now for the true witness, Jesus Christ, to testify to his deity, to his power at this very moment of weakness, betrayal, and injustice. So we read these explosive words of the chief priest in verse 61, the latter part of that verse. Take a look at it. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, if you have the English Standard Version, the ESV, that's a question, isn't it? In the Bible, in our text. But in the original language, Greek, this is a statement with a question that is implied. It is a confession which literally reads like this. You, it's an emphatic you, are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. Since the Jews couldn't use God's personal name, they substituted blessed one for son of God, God's son. In other words, the chief priest says, you are the Messiah, the son of God, to which Jesus replies in that wonderful confession first made before Moses in the burning bush where he says, I am. Under the duress and the threat of death, Jesus does not flinch. He cannot deny who he is, his true identity. But there's something else that he wants this inquisition to know. And it's found in verse 62. Oh, yes, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This suffering servant This man of weakness is the son of man who will be seated at the right hand of power in the heavenlies. I believe it's quoting from Psalm 110, verse one, one of the most often quoted Psalms in all of scripture. And he says, I will come again, quoting from the apocalyptic Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And I will come again, and I will come again in power. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you may send me to the grave but I will rise in glory. I may have come in meekness and weakness, but I'm coming back to exercise the power and authority that the Father has given me. You may be judging me now, but I'm coming back to judge you. For I am the Son of God. To quote commentator James Edwards, only In the light of suffering, can Jesus openly divulge his identity as God's son? At the trial, the veil is finally removed. 
the malevolence which the Jewish authorities have harbored since the beginning of Jesus' ministry is finally exposed. Hence, the secret that Jesus has protected since the beginning of his ministry can now be disclosed. You see, throughout the book of Mark, Jesus asked those whom he healed to be silent. He told the demons that he cast out to be silent. He even told his own disciples to be quiet about his true identity as the son of God. Go no further than Mark 1, the very first chapter of this book. When Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit, he promptly tells the spirit to be quiet. Going down to verse 34, the very first chapter of Mark, we read, he, that's Jesus, would not permit the demons to speak. Why? Here's why. Because they knew him. Verse 44, still in Mark 1, Jesus commands a leper who's been healed to say nothing to anyone. And then in Mark 5, Jesus heals, raises from the dead, A girl. And he says to the witnesses, he charges them, be quiet. Don't tell anyone. He had just raised the dead. And finally, when Peter in Mark chapter 8, verses 29, confesses to Jesus, you are the Christ. What did Jesus say to his disciples? Great, you got it. Go tell the world. No. Quite the opposite. We read, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What's going on? Why was Christ's identity to be kept a secret? Was it because Christ was scared? Maybe fearing persecution and death? Clearly not. Jesus knew why he had come to earth. He had foretold it. He came to die. That's James Edward, the quote I just mentioned. Only in the light of suffering could Jesus openly divulge his identity as God's son. Is that contrary to how you think? That's contrary to how I think. Sometimes I feel like I'm... Christ's brothers, remember the story back in John chapter 7, his unbelieving family. They say, Jesus, why don't you go to Jerusalem? Do your signs and wonders, man. Let it out. Man, this, you can't keep this a secret. Let the world know who you are. That's how I think. That's not how Christ thinks. Church, Jesus does clearly reveal his identity. But here's what we can miss. Jesus will reveal his identity as a lamb going to the slaughter, not as a celebrity. He'll reveal who he is, God's son, but as a slaughtered lamb, not as a celebrity. He won't do it before adoring crowds. He could have. He'll do it before an unjust kangaroo court. He'll do it at the cross in suffering, weakness, and death. Oh, Peter was right. Christ was and is the Messiah who was to come in power. But Peter was wrong. 
Christ must first come in weakness to be spit upon, stricken, slaughtered in our place for your sin, for my sin. So what's the implication for us as followers of Christ? We cannot, we must not be dismayed at suffering or weakness. That which we see in ourselves, that which we even see in the church at times. We can't have Christ without suffering. Discipleship is following and identifying with Christ in his suffering and weakness, not distancing ourselves, not denying Christ. In the face of suffering are when our plans go awry. For that's what Peter did, is it not? Point two, Peter's denial. While Christ confesses his identity before the high priest, Peter denies him before a lonely, lowly, excuse me, servant girl. Do you see the distancing? Do you see the progression here? Verse 68, Peter says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. In other words, when confronted about his relationship to Christ, I don't know what you're talking about. In the same verse, we read, Peter then went out into the gateway. In other words, he left the courtyard, went out to the gateway, and in doing so, he was distancing himself even further, physically, geographically, from Christ. And then in verse 70, Peter denies Christ again to the slave girl or to another. It doesn't say in the original grammar here that he denied him Again, once and done, one time, point in time. No, the grammar there is he continually, repeatedly, ongoingly was denying Christ. Peter had moved even farther away still from his Savior. And then in verse 71, we read these words. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. You see in verse 71, to invoke a curse on himself, that, word, that phrase on himself is not there in the original. It, it's supplied or implied. Either Peter is saying, may God strike me dead if I'm lying. Or perhaps he's even saying, may Jesus be cursed. To quote Danny Aiken, the rock named Peter crumbles and is pulverized under the pressure. And then verse 72 has to be some of the most sobering words in scripture. Let's read them. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. A more bitter cry, a man or a woman could not know. A man confronted with the reality at that moment of who he was and what he had done to Christ whom he had professed to know or thought that he knew. Have you been there? At the moment when Peter was to have Christ back, what did he do? He turned his back. Instead of manning up, he chickens out and gives in. 
Those are bitter tears, aren't they? But you know what? This isn't the end of the story. And that leads to our third point, our hope for you and me. This story is told in other gospels. And in Luke chapter 22, another one of the gospels, verse 61, there's an important line to the story that's added. We read this. When the rooster crowed, quote, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus was there. He saw Peter at his very worst, at his moment of fear, at that moment of confusion, of weakness and outright denial. But what Peter saw was not a condemning glare. Isn't that how we can read it? When Christ looked at Peter at that moment of denial, we can read into that glare, condemnation. But what I believe he saw was Christ's compassionate gaze. Why? Because Christ knew. He knew Peter would deny him. And Christ was to forgive. How do I know? Well, many of you know the rest of the story. Flash forward. Christ's resurrection. And Jesus has some unfinished business to do with Peter. And Peter is graciously restored in his relationship to his Savior, Jesus. And he's told to follow him once again and to shepherd his people. Just as Peter had denied Christ three times, Jesus, post-resurrection, asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter affirms his love each time. And then Jesus tells him in John 21, verses 18 and 19, up in the screen. Truly I truly, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. God was not done with Peter yet. Peter was restored, but following him would mean suffering. It would mean weakness. It would mean Death to the glory of God. Church, this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the cross. This theme of suffering, of sin, of weakness has bombarded me all week. I don't believe it's by coincidence. Maybe you're here and you're scared. Maybe it is the death that you see around you. Maybe it's something what's around you. It's what's in your own heart. You're beginning to see the depth of your own sin like never before. And you find yourself in the shoes of Peter, distant with God and guilty before him. And you can relate to Peter's bitter tears Maybe you've just seen sin in the church. You've been around for a while. Once again, maybe this church, certainly, maybe other churches that you've been a part of. You've just seen sin. It's ugly. 
you know what? You're dismayed. The gap between the church, the people of God, who one day will be, and who we are now, is immense. And it's, you find it discouraging, if not right scary. You find yourself distan- distancing yourself from the church in this Jesus who died for the church. Maybe you see the work of Satan around you, the one who came to kill, still, steal, and destroy. And you really wonder, who has the upper hand around here? Is it God or is it Satan? Perhaps it's not sin. It's not Satan that scares you. It's just weakness which confounds you. You see death and frailty all around you, starting with yourself. But here's the wonderful truth of the Christian life and discipleship. Just as Christ's identity and power was revealed in his suffering and weakness, so is his power and grace revealed to us in our own suffering and weakness. Let's put that up there. I'm going to read it one more time for us. Here's the connection, folks. Here's the payload. Just as Christ's identity and power was revealed in his suffering and weakness, so was his power and grace revealed who? To us in our suffering and weakness. Peter learned this the hard way, as did the Apostle Paul. This week I was reading through just my normal Bible reading plan. I was in 2 Corinthians. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in this book to the Church of Corinth. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. So to keep me from being coming, excuse me, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. In weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Wow. You realize Paul had a lot to boast about. He had seen visions of heaven that we know nothing of. He had the pedigree. He had every reason to boast. Yet he makes it clear that he will boast, but he'll boast in his weaknesses. You see, it's when we feel most helpless, when we feel most inept, most vulnerable, and even most hopeless, that God reveals his amazing grace and his power to us. It's at that moment that he reveals his supernatural grace and contentment to Endure and glorify God in the most trying of circumstances or conditions. Discipleship is living in this grace. Peter learned it the hard way. Paul learned it the hard way. May we learn it as well through his word. May we learn to grow and to love and to boast of God's amazing grace. When suffering comes, when the sheep, excuse me, when the sheep scatter 
and sin rears its ugly head, then we come to Jesus and receive grace upon grace. Friends, don't be dismayed. Friends, don't be distant. It's okay to be weak because we have a Savior who is a faithful witness even when we're not. Amen? I'd like to invite the worship team quietly up here. We're going to conclude with ministry through song now. Before the throne of God, Because church, here's the reality. When we're confronted with our own weakness and we can feel the gaze of others, even of our Savior upon us, we feel the conviction upon us so easily that can slip into condemnation, can it? Instead of seeing Christ's compassionate gaze we see what we perceive to be a condemning glare. We hear, we feel the words of Satan tempting us to despair. It's at those moments we say, no, I have one who is a true witness, the one who did not flinch in the face of persecution, suffering and injustice. He's the true witness and he's my witness. And he went to the cross and died for me. And he rose again and is now seated at power, the right hand of the Father, interceding for me, my mediator, the Lamb of God, slaughtered for you and me. Oh, we have a testimony. It's Jesus. Let's look to him now. However you feel, however distant, however weak, however guilty you may feel right now, however condemned you may feel if you're in Christ Jesus, if you place your saving trust in his sacrifice upon the cross, you can sing this song with confidence. Let's not murmur it. Let's sing it. This is the ministry right now. Let God through his spirit minister to us as we cry out in weakness, whatever that looks like, before the throne of God and remember our true witness, Jesus Christ. Let's stand, church, and let's sing.